Artist Live. Oh, well, sorry about that. Every day is a, a, a nice day for a white wedding, but we're not going to hear it tonight. I, I just didn't shut my, um, my my playlist off. I apologize for that. Tonight is, um, well, well, hello, this is William Fink, and, and this is Christogenia Internet Radio. Tonight is Friday, January 31st, 2014. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Tonight is going to be more or less Christogenia light. I, I didn't really plan it like this. I, I, I have a few things that I want to talk about. Um, well, we had an impromptu, well, well, we had planned a trip to Adisto Beach last week to meet with and, and conference a little and fellowship a little with Pastor Mark Downey and his wonderful wife, Debbie. But we, um, what we did, but we stayed longer than we thought we would. We drove down in the middle of an ice storm. That was, um, yeah, you know, it was just an ice storm. It, it was just another rainy night if you were a Yankee. But South Carolina, they were sliding all over the, the, the road, left and right. We saw tractor trailers upside down. We saw all kinds of cars, four-by-four four pickup trucks in the, in the ditches. It, it was... Um, it was funny, except that Melissa's a redneck girl, and she was a nervous wreck. Well, we had to stop overnight because we um, on on the way there because we well we couldn't go more than thirty miles an hour in a seventy mile an hour speed limit. It would have taken us all night to reach our destination. That that's the people in South Carolina. That, uh, a little ice and freezing rain, and, and they're just lost. They have no idea how to drive in it. Well, well today, well, we left the Disto Beach, and, and we thought we were on a four-hour ride to actually a three-and-a-half-hour ride to Myrtle Beach, where, where we planned on spending this evening alone, and, and that's where we are now. We thought we had a three-and-a-half to four-hour ride, and some nigger, well, 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 a group of niggers had, had shot up Charlotte or, or Charleston. That They shot up Charleston. They killed some, some monkey football player. And the cops had the main arteries in Charleston shut down. Uh, I don't know, the police chief, he's probably a nigger too. But he, um, well, we're sitting in a traffic jam for almost two hours and I'm on the internet reading the story, and, and they had apprehended the so-called the, the perpetrators, the, the, the four perpetrators who, who did the shooting. They had apprehended them. The news that they apprehended them was already on the internet, but the roads were still closed down, and, and Charleston was a wreck. I, I, um, if any white people are left in Charleston, please move. Leave, go to Florida, go, go anywhere, <laughs> go to Savannah. So we finally made it to Myrtle Beach, and it's rather late. Uh, I didn't get the time I wanted to to prepare for this program, but but I could talk about the things that that I had planned to talk about. So so this is where we are. I, I want to talk a little about Acts chapter twenty nine. I, I want to talk a little about preexistence. But tonight we're going to do something a little different, and, and I'm going to take phone calls tonight. So, so I hope I don't have to talk too much, 
and I hope to hear I hope to hear from some of the people that um constantly have questions, contentions. Um I I don't I don't I don't, I don't you know it, it is what it is. I I would uh appreciate participation. If I get participation, I will continue to do I it's been a long time since I've done call-in programs. If I get some participation, well, whether it's contentious or edifying, I, I don't, and maybe sometimes contention is edifying. You know, if if we have some decent discussion, I'll try to continue to to do this type of program at least every other month or so. So, so that's where we're at right now. I'd like to talk a little about Acts chapter 29. I just finished a very long presentation of the book of Acts. I tried to make it a point during that presentation to illustrate exactly where all of the epistles of Paul of Tarsus were written. And with that, to show basically when his ministry ended. And that's with his last five epistles that he wrote from Rome. And last week, discussing this book, of, this chapter 28 of the book of Acts, at, at the end of it, uh, I illustrated that from Rome, Paul wrote Ephesians, and I gave the reasons why Ephesians had to be written before Paul defended himself and gave his Christian apology before the Emperor Nero. And from there, he wrote to Timothy, begging Timothy and I say that in the polite sense, asking Timothy, requesting of Timothy, to come to Rome to him. And with that showed the timing of the, that, that same epistle to the Ephesians through the, the travels of Tychicus, Paul's fellow worker. Now, who Timothy comes to Rome, he brings Mark while as Paul asks him to bring Mark, and then we see that Paul associates himself with Timothy, he associates Timothy with himself, I should say, in his ministry, which basically shows us since those last three epistles Paul wrote from Rome, and the last three that I identified, and all the epistles of Paul, I identified when they had to be written, well, well, these last three were all written from Paul and Timothy to the Philippians, to the Colossians, and to Philemon. And, and Paul is associating Timothy with him in his ministry. And he's doing that because Paul expects Timothy to be his successor. Paul had also written into Timothy that he thought that his time was near and his time to be offered up was approaching, so Paul thought the end of his life was coming when he wrote to Timothy. He had time for Timothy and Mark to get to Rome. Mark's mentioned in these epistles. Luke is mentioned. Aristarchus is mentioned. Paul's sitting in Rome. He writes these letters with Timothy, Philippians, Colossians, and, and finally Philemon. He describes, in, in Philippians, he describes that first defense 
what which he 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 offered before um but before Nero in in that epistle and there's never any mention of a second defense in any of Paul's epistles that there's never that this is the end of Paul's fourteen epistles but the fourteen epistles which we have and the two epistles which we know about are missing were all written by this time, by the writing of Philippians, Colossians, and, and Philemon. And there's never any um, reference in any of Paul's epistles that he was ever released from Rome, that he ever traveled beyond Rome, that he ever had any sort of ministry beyond this time, or that he ever had a second defense against Christianity in the past tense. He said that he was going to go again, and he did go to Nero. Well, there was never any looking back in Paul's epistles at any of these things. Paul's epistles are all done by this time. Luke says in Acts, he ends the book of Acts with a statement that Paul spent two years in Rome. All of these things once the order of his epistles and their writing is recognized, is realized, all of these things easily fell within that two-year two time period. Paul was never released from captivity, from, from, from being a prisoner in Rome. He was executed there. His life ends there. The records end there. There's a, a, a comment in, um, in, in Paul's epistle to Timothy that at his first defense only that, that he was alone. And, and then when he closes the letter to Timothy, he says, only Luke was with me. And Eusebius of Caesarea, Eusebius, the, the, um, the fourth century Christian bishop, he tries to, to take advantage of that and, and claim that that proves because nobody was with him at his first defense. And, and when he wrote, to Timothy that only Luke was with him, that that proves that he was somehow released after his first offense, and now he's arrested again in Rome and only Luke is with him. That, 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 those passages do not demand that interpretation. In fact, just because only Luke was with him when he wrote to Timothy doesn't mean that Luke wasn't in his house in Rome when he gave his first offense before Nero. It simply means that Paul was alone when he gave his first defense before Nero, and that Luke may easily have been somewhere else, that Luke wasn't in the praetorium for some reason, that all of the other people that had been with Paul departed, as Paul explains. Paul explains in 2 Timothy the fates of all those who worked with him and Timothy in, in their ministry over these many years, he explains that to Timothy, even though Timothy should have known some of those things because Timothy was with Paul for a lot of that time. Well, well Paul explains that to Timothy as a sort of public notice because what that does is that's a record that all of the people that worked with Paul and Timothy, Paul was not considering because they all departed from him for one reason or another some of them departed from the faith, Paul was not considering any of them to be his successor. Paul wanted Timothy to come to Rome with that knowledge because Paul associating Timothy 
with his ministry in those last three epistles, Paul was making Timothy his successor. Yet, you know, the proof of that is in the fact that Paul wrote all these epistles. If you read Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, other men actually penned these epistles for Paul and, um, because of Paul's bad eyesight. And, and that can be demonstrated. It's, it's explicit in Romans and in Galatians. All these epistles that were written before time, Paul had other men with him. But Paul always wrote those epistles from Paul. Those epistles weren't from Paul and Luke or Paul and Aristarchus, even though Luke was his fellow worker, even though Aristarchus was his fellow laborer and his fellow prisoner, as he says in Colossians and in Philemon. He didn't write letters from Paul and Luke. Only at the end of his ministry, when Timothy, as Timothy was requested of Paul in 2 Timothy, when Timothy does come to Rome after 2 Timothy was written, and Paul writes those last three epistles, Colossians, Philemon, and, and Ephesians, only Paul only associates Timothy with him in his ministry. And, and that, that sort of proof is in the narrative. The, the clear proof is in the narrative once you understand the narrative. And the narrative is not very difficult to understand. I, I pray that I made it clear in, in my 34-part Acts presentation. So we have in, in British Israel something called the Sunini Manuscript and, and the 29th chapter, the lost chapter of Acts. And, and that thing claims, you know, playing on, on, on Eusebius's assertions, that thing claims that Paul was released from imprisonment in Rome, traveled to Spain, traveled to Britain, preached in Britain, traveled back through France and, and Switzerland into Italy, and went back to Rome. There's not one, there's not one shred of historical evidence, there's not one shred of biblical evidence that supports any of that claim. None. Nothing. Zero. There's not one shred, not one hint of evidence in any of Paul's epistles that such events took place. And as I illustrated in my Acts presentation, all those epistles were written except five before Paul went to Rome. And the other five, we see the order of those epistles very clearly in the things that Paul says within them. Paul writes Ephesians, Paul writes to Timothy, and then Paul writes Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon, we don't know the order that those three were written in, but they were all written after his first defense before Nero, and he was expecting to speak before Nero again. And that would be marking the time of his execution. We don't hear anything from Paul after that, nothing. There's no evidence of this 
29th chapter of Acts of these assertions at all in the Bibles that we have. And that would be awfully strange if Paul was able to do all of these things and that are mentioned in this so-called Acts chapter 29, yet there's no evidence, not one shred of evidence for any of these things. I, I, don't, I hate to read Acts chapter 29. I, I'd like to give some, some, some background on it. This is from a page at um, IsraelElect.com. That, that, um, the links that are found on Wikipedia and, and, and Google to this page are broken. I... Um, I am the, the, the current landlord, I should say, uh, of IsraelElect.com. If the links are broken, it's because the person who created the website, he did not use the, the correct case, upper and lower case, for his file names and the links in his pages. And um, that, that's something that I thought I had worked out, but I evidently didn't fix it for all of the directories. So, so the links on Google and, and, um, and, and Wikipedia and other sites for some IsraelElect.com pages still don't work. I just noticed that the person that created IsraelElect uses Windows. Windows, the file names, he used a Windows server, and, and the file names are not case-sensitive. I use Linux, and, and the file names, of course, are case-sensitive, as they should be. So, so there are some problems, and I apologize for that, but you, there, there are other sources, even though IsraelElect.com was a popular one, there are other sources for this manuscript on the Internet that the um, Sacred Text Archive is, is one of them. This lost chapter of Acts was supposedly located in a copy of a book, which was called the, um, the, the Travels in Greece and Turkey by C.S. Samini or Charles Samini. And, and the book does exist. The book was published in 1801. But just because the book exists doesn't mean that this so-called lost chapter of Acts or this so-called Samini manuscript actually existed. To the contrary, and according to the people that promote this lost chapter of Acts, which I think is trash, to the contrary, the lost chapter of Acts, that there's no direct con directly connecting it to this Sanini character because it was only found in a copy of his book in the library of the so-called Sir John Newport in Ireland. And, and this so-called Sir John Newport, he supposedly um, passed on and his heirs found the Sinini manuscript in, in his copy of a book published by Sinini. Not a book owned by Sinini necessarily, but a book published by Sinini. So... so this seems to me to, to be a tale that creates a chain of witnesses, but none of the witnesses are actually testifying to the providence of the manuscript. It's only somebody claiming the manuscript was found in one guy's library in a book that another guy wrote. And that's really, really thin 
it's not evidence. It's just um, it's just a, an empty claim. It's not evidence at all. That they give a story about how this manuscript, this Greek manuscript, was presented to Sanini by Sultan Abdul Achme. I, I, I don't know how they can um, come up with that story since Sanini. Well, there's no citations anywhere in any of these accounts of the Sanini manuscript from anything actually written by Sanini, even though, and, and I'm looking, you, you can find a copy of this book on Google Books, this Travels in Greece and Turkey, undertaken by order of Louis XVI and with the authority of the Ottoman court by C.S. Sanini, but just because he actually published this, it was published in two volumes, just because this book was a real book published in 1801 in London, just because it was a real book <clears throat> does not mean anything unless the book is described in Sanini's volumes. Now, I'm not going to read all of Sanini's volumes. That, that, that are quite lengthy volumes, but the people that promote this lost chapter of Acts, they don't give any citations. None. Zero. They only make what are basically empty claims. Empty claims. They're making claims, but why aren't there any citations if, if any of this is true? It's certainly not true. And even if it were true, even if this Sanini character actually did have this Greek manuscript, which he got from some Turkish sand nigger, even if the that that story were true, that does not mean that the 29th chapter of Acts is a legitimate book. And it's certainly not a legitimate book. And, 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 and I'm going to... I'm going to sketch it out. The, the first verse claims that Paul departed from Rome, something there's absolutely no corroboration for. There's no proof of this that Paul departed from Rome and did go to Spain. And we see that he planned on doing that when he wrote the Romans, but he wrote the book, the, the, the epistle to the Romans before he was arrested in Jerusalem. As I demonstrated, presenting Acts chapter 20. Paul wrote the epistle to Romans before he was arrested in Jerusalem. He had no idea he was going to be arrested. He planned on going to Spain, yes. But... There's absolutely no evidence that he ever made it past Rome. I'm talking about real historical or real biblical evidence. There's none. So Paul plans on going to Spain, and, and then it says, for he had heard on Phoenicia that certain of the children of Israel, about the time of the Assyrian captivity, had, had escaped by sea to the isles of far off, as spoken by the prophet Esdras and called by the Romans Britain. Well, he had heard that on Phoenicia. I, I, I don't know. Maybe they meant to write Malta. There was no island in the Middle Ages called Phoenicia. He had heard on Phoenicia. There was no island at the time of Paul called Phoenicia. There was a port on the island of Crete called Phoenix, which is mentioned in Acts chapter 27, but there was no island called Phoenicia. 
So I, I, that, that's a total historical anomaly. It was an absolute history. Now, now, if he heard in Phoenicia, well, you, you know, that might be true, but Paul would have had to have been in, in Tyre or Sidon to hear that. Paul was a student of the classics. He knew where the children of Israel were. He knew what tribes they were. He wouldn't have had to obtain hearsay that some Israelites went to Britain while, while he was on some island or other place in the Mediterranean. Paul wouldn't need hearsay to understand that. So, so right there, verse 2 does not ring true at all. Verse 2 kind of sounds like some, some British Israel fabrication. That's what it sounds like to me. The, the, um, the Phoenicians, the, the real original Phoenicians, and, and, and evidently a portion of the Trojans, they were the actual people called, that they became Phoenician colonists and evidently Trojan colonists became what the people who we know later as the Britons. But Paul, being a student of the classics and the Old Testament, he understood where Israel went. He didn't have to hear some report on, on some island somewhere that, that there might be lost Israelites in Britain. That, that's absurd. It's absurd. It doesn't ring true at all. Paul had a much deeper understanding of classical history and the dispersions of Israel than the clown that forged this so-called lost chapter of Acts. Well, well, I should say the clown that fabricated it. And the Lord commanded the gospel to be preached far hence to the Gentiles and to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Right there we have universalism. And, And right there, that's not what the Lord commanded. He, he didn't want the, the, the gospel preached to the Gentiles and to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He commanded the gospel preached, be preached to the nations and that those nations were the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So again, we see an understanding that really belongs in British Israel, but it doesn't belong in Scripture because that's not the understanding Paul had. Paul taught in Romans chapter 4 that the nations he was going to were indeed the nations descended from Abraham, which were the heirs of the promises, which were the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So here we see British Israel universalism. Here in um, in verses 2 and 3 of this so-called lost chapter of Acts. Verse 4, nobody hindered Paul, and, and um, he testified of, of Jesus before the, the, the Romans in, in Spain, according to this. And, and well, well, I'm sorry, in Rome, and then he got on a ship in, in Italy and went to Spain. And he gathered many people in towns and villages in Spain. And he preached mightily in Spain. 
And then he went on and departed Spain and went to Britain. And then he supposedly preached in Britain, in Rathenus, and, and there's a lot of parenthetical statements which are editors' um, amendations here, parenthetical remarks. And then, while in Rathenus, he claims that he, he's supposedly met by a Hebrew man and stays in, in the house of a Hebrew in one of his own nation. And there were certainly Judeans in, in Britain at this time, and that's no problem, but that doesn't make it true. And, and then he stood on Mount Lud, and he preached. And it says, And on the morrow he came and stood upon Mount Lud, and the people thronged in the gate, and they believed the word and the testimony of Jesus. And that, that's fine. Take it for what it's worth. It, it's a nice story. It's only a nice story because it's only a story. And even the Holy Ghost fell upon Paul, and he prophesied. This is verse 10. And he prophesied, saying, Behold, in the last days the God of peace shall dwell in the cities, and the inhabitants thereof shall be numbered, and in the seventh numbering of the people their eyes shall be opened. And the glory of their inheritance shine forth before them. But well, first let me say that the numbering of Israel was odious to Yahweh, that, that um, David numbered Israel and, and, and God punished them for it. Then it goes on to say, the nation shall come to worship on the mount that testifies of the patience and long-suffering of the serpent of the Lord. So this is kind of, this is typical British Israel um, Jewish ass-kissing because it, it, it seems to be that it, it's talking about the Jews and, and we're going to see, and the Jews, when I say Jews, I mean the mainstream sense of the word because that's how the British Israelites use that, use that word, the, the, the British Israel people. But we're going to see that this lost chapter of Acts is very apologetic of the Jews. Verse 11, And in the later days, new tidings of the gospel shall issue forth out of Jerusalem, and the hearts of the people shall rejoice, and behold, fountains shall be opened, and there shall be no more plague. In those days, there shall be wars and rumor of war. Well, this is just right from the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 24, that there's nothing really new here. And then in verse 13, well, well, let me finish verse 12. In those days there shall be wars and rumor of war. And the king shall rise up, and his sword shall be for the healing of the nations, and his peacemaking shall abide, and the glory of his kingdom will wander amongst princes. Well, well, this is some straight bullshit. And this is really important to understand that this alone, this verse 12 alone, discredits this so-called lost chapter of Acts, because we only have peace in Christ, and Christ, as Luke testifies in the book of Acts, and as, or, or in his gospel in the last chapter of Acts, I'm sorry, in uh, his gospel in the last chapter of Luke, and as Paul testifies in, in his epistles, Christ is going to return the same way he left. This, 
verse 12, and a king shall rise up, and his sword shall be for the healing of the nations, insinuates that a king is going to rise up from amongst these nations, these earthly nations. That's anti-biblical. That's taking the, the, the idea of the return of the Messiah to be through the seed of men. And that's absolutely contrary to the testimony of the apostles and the revelation. So Acts chapter 29 is basically espousing the idea of, of more like a, a Jewish, the, the second Messiah or, or the Messiah of the Jews. The, the Jews actually thought that they would have two Messiahs, a suffering Messiah. And this is in the Talmud, and Clifton M. Heiser has um, spelled this out in, in his Ephraim Scepter Heresy, part number six on his website, that the Talmud claimed that there would be two Messiahs, a suffering Messiah from, from the line of Joseph and a conquering Messiah from the line of Judah. Well, well this verse 12 of Acts chapter 29 seems to reflect that Jewish belief in, in a Messiah, that a Messiah is going to rise up from amongst men, and we as Christians should reject that idea because the gospel and the, the words of Christ in the Revelation tell us that he will return just as he departed. He will return in the flesh, and he will avenge the children of Israel. So all, all of this, the, this Acts chapter 29, it's some straight hogwash, to use a nicer term. Verse 13, and it shall come to pass that certain of the Druids came to Paul privately. Now, now you know, what we discussed and proved historically when Paul was arrested, Paul was arrested in 57 AD in Jerusalem. And Paul was kept under wraps in Jerusalem in prison until 59. He got to Rome in 60. Luke says Paul spent two years in Rome my contention is that, or my assertion, is that Paul was executed in 62 AD in Rome. Now, if you want to imagine that Paul was released in 62 AD, and, and after about a year got to London, and now he's meeting these people called Druids, if you look at Roman history, it's pretty common knowledge, and it's well documented in Roman history. One of the people that documented is Pliny the Elder. The Druids were stamped out of Roman Britain in the days of Augustus and Tiberius. The Druids were heavily persecuted by Augustus, and by the time of Tiberius, you wouldn't find a Druid in London. There were none. The, the Druids were destroyed and run out of Roman Britain. Now, now there may have been some Druids hiding out in, in, in Wales, in Scotland, maybe some of them fled, but... but you sure as hell aren't going to find people who, who were publicly known to be Druids in London after the time of Tiberius, which is 30 years before the, the, the events which are described or, or which are fabricated in the lost chapter of Acts could have possibly taken place. So, so the mention of Druids here, it, is, um, it, it just lends to the fact that the lost chapter of Acts it's hogwash. It's balderdash. It's anti-biblical, and it's 
it's contrary to known historical records. That's why, you know, Druids, as far as I know, and, and I haven't read all the classics, I haven't read everything, I don't know everything, but as far as I've read, in all the classics that I have read, the, the Druids aren't mentioned any longer in, in historical writings after um, Pliny the Elder, and, and he's looking back at a time that, that, that's several, that, that's many decades before his own, at least six, six, seven, eight decades before his own. And they're mentioned in Diodorus Siculus, but Diodorus Siculus stopped writing about 35 BC. And um, wherever they're mentioned after the first century, they're mentioned as a thing in the past. I don't, you know, there may have been Druids um, mentioned in other writings, but I've never seen them. So, like I said, I haven't written it, read everything, but I've read most of the important historians up until the time of, of Procopius. Most of them. I, there's a couple I, I haven't read um, Plutarch yet, and, and I haven't I haven't read Pliny's Natural History yet, and I just quoted it from another source, but. I don't the, the mention of druids in verse thirteen tells me again that this is that this is a fairy tale. It, it it's contrary to to the Bible for certain, and it's also contrary to history. It, it was invented. This entire tale was invented. Paul stayed in, in in London allegedly. Paul stayed in in London for three months and and departed again from Raphinus or, or the, the ancient name for Kent or a sandwich I believe or something like that. And, and Paul preached in a Roman garrison in in Gaul, according to this. And, and then he went to the Belgae, and, and there came, I'm sorry, the Belgae came to him, and there came to him certain the Belgae to inquire of him the new doctrine. Now, some people have asked me if the Belgae actually existed at this time, and the answer is yes, they did. The Belgae were known right in what we know as modern Belgium. They'd been there a long time, and yes, they were there in Roman times. They were there at the time of Julius Caesar, and they were there before that. So the, the Belgae did exist in, in, in France. Well, well, in Gaul, it would be called at this time. The um, Gaul to the Romans, even though they had called the, the um, they had later called the lands just immediately west of the Rhine, west of the Rhine, they called that Germania. That's because they had resettled tribes that were originally east of the Rhine in those areas immediately west of the Rhine. Well, well, Gaul, originally to the Romans, when they first identified um, what we know as Germany as Germania, because that wasn't always known as Germania, the Greeks called it all Galatahi. All those people were the Galatahi, and, and all that land belonged to the Galatahi. Everything, um, all, all the way to the Pyrenees Mountains, at, to the Black Sea, to the Greeks was generally called Galatahi, but the Romans divided it at the Rhine, and they called everything west of the Rhine Gaul, and they called everything east of the Rhine Germania or, or Germany. So, so it's a Roman distinction. 
but the um, the Belgae were an, either an early wave of, of the Scythians and, and Temerians, or they were possibly proto-Celts, meaning that they were Phoenician settlers of, of what we know today as northern France and Belgium. It, it's... Um, up in the air. I, I don't know with the, the information that I have in, in my head right now. I don't know if I discussed them at length in my German origins papers. I'm going to present them on, on Christogenia Internet Radio, uh, I hope, this year and, and elaborate on them somewhat. But uh, the Belgae were there for a long time. They were there from, from at least the first century BC. So that's where Belgium got its name. Verse 18. And after much preaching and toil, Paul and his fellow laborers passed on into Helvetia. That, that's the ancient Roman name for what we know as Switzerland, and, and the Swiss still use that name. And came to Mount Pontius Pilate, where he who condemned the Lord Jesus dashed himself down headlong and so miserably perished. That there's um, absolutely zero historical evidence for that. None. None whatsoever. Pontius Pilate was recalled to Rome, and um, and 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 escaped answering charges against him by the people in Palestine with the death of Tiberius. But there's no evidence that he killed himself in Switzerland. There's no evidence that a, a mountain in Switzerland was named after Pontius Pilate. And it's very, very unlikely, Pilate being a relatively minor political figure, that his death would merit getting a whole mountain named after him. This is ridiculous. This, this is absolutely um, historically unverifiable. Every word of it. There's no corroboration for it whatsoever. And immediately a torrent gushed out of the mountain and washed his body broken in pieces into a lake. And Paul stretched forth his hands. That's a reference to what supposedly happened in the Pontius Pilate in Switzerland, right? Which there's absolutely no evidence for. And Paul stretched forth his hands upon the water and prayed unto the Lord, saying, O Lord God, give a sign unto all nations that here Pontius Pilate, which condemned thine only begotten son, plunged down headlong into the pit. What this is doing, what this Acts chapter 29 is doing, is it's taking the burden for the condemnation of Christ off of the Jews and putting the guilt on Pontius Pilate. That's what it's doing. Whoever dreamed up this garbage, and it is garbage, the last chapter, this so-called lost chapter of Acts, Acts chapter 29, is pure garbage. Whoever dreamed this up had a desire to take the burden of the guilt for the condemnation of Christ off of the Jews and to put that burden on Pontius Pilate. When the gospel accounts and the book of Acts do the exact opposite, they clearly show that Pilate did not want to condemn Christ, but that he was forced into a, into a catch-22 situation where he had no choice, and he knew that Christ was innocent, and he washed his hands of the matter. 
Christ, Pontius Pilate had no guilt at all in the matter of the condemnation of Christ. The gospel accounts and the book of Acts put that onus, that, that burden entirely on the Jews, or, or I should say more properly at that time, the people of Judea, a lot of them were Edomites, and some of them were Israelites, the people of Judea who rejected Christ. They had the blame for the condemnation of Christ. This lost chapter, chapter of Acts, it, it seems to me like it was written, it, it was contrived by some British Israel Jew ass-kisser. That's who wrote the 29th chapter of Acts. But it was not written by Luke. It was not written by Paul. Paul never did any of these things. That this is just a fairy tale. And they went forth and came into Illyricum, intending to go by Macedonia into Asia. And grace was found in all the churches, and they prospered and had peace. Amen. Okay, it's a nice story, but it's only a story. That's all it is. It's not true. There's no proof for it. it it's ridiculous. It's anti-biblical. And it's contrary to... It, it's roughly contrary to known historical records. So, so that's Acts chapter 29. It's trash. It does not belong in Christian identity. Not at all. Well, well, I'll take some phone calls. I don't know if Matthew Watts here listening to me. He, he, um, he, he had indicated that, that he would be here. Matt, are you there? Hey, Bill. Hello. How you doing? Good. I don't, know, I, don't know, I don't know if we're going to have any phone calls tonight. It, it would be nice to have some. Uh, I mean, i got other things to talk about in the meantime. Uh, I didn't think that presentation would take so long, but, but I had to get that off my chest. Well, I mean, it was, it was quite excellent. I mean, you, you did a very good job of, of proving how this quote-unquote lost chapter of Acts is, is truly bunk. Uh, I mean, on, on the face of it, you know, people who would just, even just perusing the the Acts uh, chapters, you know, to come across chapter 29, it's, it's written in such a fashion that most people aren't going to recognize the, the historical farces involved in something like that unless you're actually doing the, the uh, proper exegesis on something like that. Well, well, absolutely. It's anybody that, that, that's a studied Christian should be able to read the Lost Chapter of Acts and, and do the same thing I just did. Uh, I just I didn't have any time to prepare for it. I just did this by getting the Lost Chapter of Acts off one of my websites and, and going through it off the top of my head. It's, um, yeah, you know, a, a little knowledge of the history of the period, but, but um, just for, it, it's conflict with Scripture. Should, should be clear that the, the um, verse 12, that messianic prophecy, is absolutely contrary to the scriptures. I know, and and the thing is, you know, I mean, I I knew that that uh, Acts was a, a 
pretty much a, a fabricated chapter, you know, the, the understanding that it's the lost chapter of Acts and all that. But when, you know, when you're able to, and like you said, any true Christian should be able to read that and pick these things right out. You know, as you're, as you're bringing these points out, you know, there's, you can tell people in the chat and everything are, are you know, they're, they're recognizing it very easily. But at the same time, you know, when, when we're dealing with, with your nominal Christians and dealing with nominal Christianity, when these people, you know, when they read the Bible, they see something completely different because they're not even seeing history. They're not even, they're not even putting one and one together to equal two, that this book is an actual history book, and it can be, it, it can be um, judged against itself for the truth. Well, well, absolutely. There's no doubt. It, it's, yeah, you know, some good people have been sucked in by Acts chapter 29. I never read it, but Ibrahim and Cap wrote a booklet on it. And there's a lot of, well, well all the British Israel sucked in by it because it says things that they want to hear. Oh, Paul was in, in London. That proves that we're Israel. You know, it's, it's childish, and it doesn't need to be. You know, we don't need... Paul in London to prove that the British are, 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 are you know, a part of the 12 tribes. Uh, of course, the British, would, the British Israel clowns claim that they're all of the 12 tribes. I, I mean, for, for the most part, that they, they want to flush the rest of Europe down the toilet, and, and, and they've done a good job of it. Right. Um, Acts chapter 29, a lot of people are, are sucked in by their zeal, that they're deceived by their own zeal, and, and they want to believe Paul is in Britain. Uh, I mean, it's wonderful to think that Paul is in Britain, but the truth is simply that he wasn't. Yet, we, right. do not need, we, we do not need Paul in Britain to prove Christian identity. I mean, it's, it, it, it's just not necessary to make up stories or to accept made-up stories because they say what we want to hear, but we have enough real history to support our assertions concerning Scripture. Exactly. And, and, it's, and it seems to be, you know, this whole assertion, I think you're pinpointing it well and saying that it's, it's, you know, it has to do with British Israelitism because this, you know, this is what helps substantiate what British Israel, Israelitism is trying to portray as the truth. All it does is, is you know, try to validate their doctrine. It, it doesn't, it has nothing to do with, with continuing with the truth. Danny Dewright said in the chat, Phil, I have a copy of that E. Raymond Cat book. Do you want to look at it? And, and, and um, I appreciate the offer, but Acts chapter 29 is bad enough for me by itself. I don't need the cap book, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we I, do, I, I wanted to let you know, we do have a caller from Idaho who has been on the phone since the beginning. I'm not sure if, if they called in to simply listen since they've been here since the beginning of the show or they actually wanted to uh, contribute. Yeah, well, well, open his open his line and see if he wants to. Okay. 
Tom from Idaho. And yeah, yeah, this Hello, is Tom, Tom from Idaho. Hi. How you doing? Dave, just praise Yahweh. Yeah, praise Yahweh. Spoke to you sometime recently, and I appreciated that opportunity. And yeah, I'd like to contribute tonight. The um, the comments that you made about Acts 29 are much appreciated. I mean, it's another example of the various faux gospel diversions that you and Clifton in particular have exposed over time, and I do appreciate that. And whether it's Jewish influence or British Israelite or both, it accomplishes the same bad purpose. So um, I appreciate the comments that you had tonight on that one. Um, well, thank you. I want to start by saying Happy Chinese New Year, uh, Bill. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> yes, January 29th, or it's 31st. This is the Chinese New Year. It's the year of the horse. It's passion, leadership, and love, Bill. <laughs> But, well, yeah, but I don't. I don't think the Chinese could count. That's why they had to name their years. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my wife is the year of the rat. Unfortunately, she doesn't like that. All right. Well, I think what I'd really like to ask you, and there are a, couple, a few questions here, so you can cut me off whenever you've had enough of me. But <laughs> I'm curious about this um, issue about the druids. I was wondering. Yeah, they. They perhaps were out of London by the time of Tiberius, but were they proto-Celts or were they Phoenicians? Where do you think the Druids came from originally? I believe that the origin of the Druids was probably in a paganized form of, of you know, ancient Hebrew beliefs because the Phoenicians and, and the people that settled in Britain were some of the earliest departing from... The, the main body of Israel in, in Egypt and in Palestine. So, so it, it's, um, well, well it's, it, it's not possible to pin down any um, pre-Israelite influences that they may have had when they arrived in Western Europe because there had to be other Adamic tribes, the Jepethi tribes, who had already ventured that way, that there's archaeology that supports that and, and the dating of certain cultures but that, that supports that, that there had to be a da- other Adanic people, in other words, from the Jepethites mainly, who were in um, Britain and, and Western Europe before the Phoenicians and, and preceded the children of Israel, the dispersions of Israel into Britain as well. But that doesn't get, you know, so what other extraneous influences they may have had, it, it can't be pinned down, but it seems to me that the Druids are a, a paganized offshoot uh, of ancient Israelite priesthood. That, that, can I prove that? No. But, but some of the things, and I, and I have illustrated this in my German origins papers, some of the things that we see in the Levitical priesthood, we also see in the Roman descriptions of the Druids. Now, now we only have a few scant descriptions, and, and, and the, the, the ones I'm most familiar with are indeed Orsiculus and Strabo, but they're, they're very scant mentions of the Druids. Later Roman historians ha- had written a lot, of, um, a, a lot of terrible things about the Druids, but that's at a time um, well after the, the, the conquest of Britain and during the, the, the British uprisings against the Romans that, that 
leads me to believe that the later descriptions of the Druids being cannibals and, and wicked men, that that's all basically wartime propaganda. Right, right. Well, I remember the stories about the Japhethites perhaps preceding the Shemites as they went west in the Mediterranean. That would make sense. However, I also remembered your account of them as having some Levitical overtones in their ordinal practices or something. And that, to me, seemed, well, which was it? Was it Japhethite or was it Shemitic? I didn't know. And I am familiar well, well, with the later... What, what I'm saying is that they definitely had the Levitical overtones, but they may have had influences from the paganism that Israel adopted and from the Japhethites who had already dwelt there when, when the Phoenicians had gotten to Britain. Okay. But if they were in fact Shemitic, if they were in fact at least in part Shemitic by the time they got up and were called Druids, would that have been from Phoenician stock, Proto-Celt? How, how, do, you, how do you look at the ancient... Israelite influence at that point. Well, well, the the, the Britons, the first settlers of of Ireland and Britain, and and let me say that the the, the um, I believe it was Strabo who referred to the Irish as the Britons of Ireland, right? Okay. He considered okay. them to be Britons as well as the people of England, and, and Ireland was not the, the backward savage people at the time that that the Romans portrayed them to be, the, the Irish at the time were actually quite cultivated, and, and, um, and for whatever reason, the Romans didn't conquer them, but, but the Irish were not savages. The, the um, Strabo considered them both to be Britons. Well, well, I believe those people, that the original stock of Britain and Ireland to be from the Phoenician Israelite travelers, and the Phoenician Israelite Israelite peoples who also settled in, in, in Spain and along the northern coast of Africa, that now there were later waves that the Kimri, and, and this is confused by most um, Christian Israel expositors, the Kimri and the Picts were actually from northern Gaul and, and, and what we would know today as western Germany, right? And, and they crossed into England from that direction. The Kimri are clearly the Cimmerians, and, and they got to Britain no earlier than the 4th century AD, where the, um, the, the, even the, the, the British themselves only had myths, and a lot of these things were confounded, but that, that name Kimri could not have existed in Britain without the Cimmerians. The, the original settlers of Britain, it's that there are stories in, in Virgil, especially in Virgil, that a branch of the Trojans had all, always all, also settled in Britain. And I'm not, you know, I'm not 100%, I'm not blindly accepting of that, right? I would love corroboration for that story, but I don't have um, what I would consider appropriate corroboration for it yet in my reading outside of Virgil, right? Um, Virgil being a poet of the first century, even though we can rely on his work as being fairly historical, he was also a propagandist, right? He, he was also a propagandist for Caesar. So, so it, it's, well, while Virgil, I, I trust most of his work is historical, especially the work that I can, the, the statements I can corroborate 
I'm not blindingly accepting of it. So, so we have to have a little caution. That, that's why I said it's very possible that some of the original inhabitants of Britain are of Trojan stock. But, but I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't want to say that it's 100% certain and, and get into Virgil and, and accept everything that Virgil said because I really don't have ample corroboration for it in literature and, and out in the mouths of two or three witnesses, a matter is established. I mean, that's the way it is. But, but it's very clear that these people in Britain were of the Phoenician stock and, and, and Ireland were of the Phoenician stock. And that's, that is amply um, attested to. The Phoenician tin trade in, in Cornwall and the Phoenician presence in Britain as an economic factor and a settling factor, that, that is amply attested to in the, in the classics. Yeah, and I'm pretty comfortable with the history of, of England in that regard. Uh, as opposed to that, though, and even though I read Thomas Cahill on the Irish saving civilization and depicting Ireland in a manner that you just did regarding when the Romans came as being a lot more developed than what some would have portrayed, there was at least some stigma or something that attached to the British and has survived to this day among a number of Anglophile types that will love to trounce on the Irish as being something lesser. And I wondered if that was rooted in their ancient paganism, maybe this mixture with Japhethites, maybe there was some other admixture or something that was the source of all of these denigrating portrayals at times with the Irish, or was it just the fact they had gone Catholic? I, I don't know. I'll tell you what the source of the denigrating portrayals, I'll, I'll tell you what the source of the denigrating portrayals is. It's the damn Jews in London who were, who, who were financing the kings all the way back to the 12th century, all the way back to before that, to the time of William the Conqueror, who brought the damn Jews into, into Britain, and the Jews of London, the merchants of London, who were there from the days of William of Normandy, they corrupted the English people against all the surrounding nations. Not only the British, the Germans, the Scots, the French, that all came from those damn Jews in the city. That's been going on since the 11th century. That ain't nothing new. Well, that certainly would be a, a logical thing based upon what we all know regarding two seed line and all that makes sense. I could never see it because every time I look at anything regarding Ireland, every time we've traveled there or done anything, I mean, it feels like brothers and sisters to me, and I always felt awfully strange about that somehow depiction, and I didn't know whether it was British Israelite or your explanation certainly makes a lot of sense. All right. Well, well, yeah, you know the British, the, the British, the, the British Israel people have kissed the Jews' asses for, right from the beginning. Uh, I mean, Sharon Turner. I thought Sharon Turner was a brilliant man, and, and he did our race a, a great, a great favor in, in his locating uh, of the Beowulf poem and. and his translations of the Saxon Chronicles and his authoring of the history of the Anglo-Saxons. But he was still a good friend of Benjamin Disraeli. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The, the British Israel scholars and academics, they were in bed with the Jews from the beginning. 
maybe not John Wilson, but, but, but I mean, for the 1860s, 1840s, Sharon Turner, that they were in bed with the Jews from the beginning. They were sympathetic to Jews and, and open to discourse and, and learning from the Jews who, who had converted everything of sense. Mm-hmm. Well, that kind of opens the door to the other major question that I had, and, and that is, as I've studied the idea of the millennium being somewhere around the time of Justinian up to the time of the de Medici's, say 538 to 1538, something like that, and I see that there were, within the scope of that thousand years, a number of things that happened that I'll end up being challenged by people I speak to about this. If this was a time of ruling with Christ, if this was a time of the millennium as depicted, we have all of these woes that go on anyway during this time, including the Arab well, well, invasion. Right. Just, just because the children of Israel are ruling with Christ in, in one prophecy doesn't mean that the other prophecies concerning the, 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 um, the, the, the beasts of Daniel... And, and the beast of, of the revelation itself, and, and the 2,520 years of Israel's punishment, that, that you know, the, the, the millennial kingdom where, where the Christian nations of Europe lived under kings and, and, and a pope, right? And, and, and they were free of day to day. They were never free of the Jews, but the Jews were not citizens the Jews could not hold Christian slaves. The Jews could not hold office. Christians did not borrow money on usury. Jewish usury was supposedly outlawed to Christians. We know that a lot of the noblemen broke that. But, but this, just because we have two concurrent prophecies doesn't mean that either of them are invalid. Well, my explanation for that, similar, would be that there was during that period a special purpose, of course, of the one prophecy to give us a chance to coalesce as the Israelite nations to rule with Christ in the sense that we became the first formed Christian nations. That gave us a chance to get our start during that period. It didn't mean that we wouldn't have challenges from the outside with these woes, nor did it mean, apparently, as I'm gathering from this discussion, that internal little quizlings like those of British Israelites saying things about the Irish or things like that in association with Jews in our midst wouldn't necessarily happen at the same time either. So uh, we'll, we'll have our challenges going along, but of course this millennium concept has been so romanticized and mysticized and turned into a comic book event that to even entertain the idea that we were still dealing with such mundane challenges seems to be beyond the imagination of most people I speak to. So that's that's one of the challenges in discussing that approach. But I see it. Well, well, right. But there, that there's that there's so many challenges in in um in in trying to get Judeo Christians and and agnostics and. Atheist white nationalists understand Christian identity. I mean, there is a multitude of challenges, and all of those show us one thing, that a man's eyes can only be opened if Yahweh God is the opening. Yeah. Well, and make him, that is the only thing that makes a man receptive to hearing all these things. Yeah, well, that's a rare man these days, I'll tell you. Well, 
I have a, a question to clarify that, though. I, I listened to your works on description of the woes, and I realized the Muslims first, and I understand the Seljuk Turks and those Turkish invasions. What was the third one? I couldn't get clear out of the materials that you talked about to identify specifically the third woe. Uh, I need the scripture, right? I, I, need, I need the third woe was not yet coming, right? I, I need the scripture in front of me. I, oh, I, I don't. Okay. I, I mean, my memory's pretty good, but it's not that good. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, I didn't. I didn't know. It was such a. As you were talking in that particular presentation, it seemed to kind of trail off into a number of things, but it wasn't specifically identified well, as well, a. The, well, per se. Well, right, but it says the third woe has not yet come, and, and then the revelation never mentions the third woe again. I don't, I, I don't think, off the top of my head. Well, go and figure. That would explain we it. Go then. Into the, um, what we go into the seven trumpets. Okay. All right. Now I get it. Or, right. or the, seven, would... the seven vials. The seven vials, I believe. All right. They come yet two. Woes after these things. That that's in Revelation nine. The second woe is departed. The third woe comes quickly, and then we have the seventh seventh messenger sounded the seventh trumpet, and there's the pouring of the seven vials. So, so the seven, pouring of the seven vials must be the third woe collectively, perhaps? Okay. You did discuss that at the time, just not in the context of specifically mentioning a woe. And I, I realize this is theory. We're trying to figure it out, and that, that's one plausible explanation. I, I get it. Well, well, right, but there are certain markers, and, and I pointed that out. There are certain markers in the Revelation that, that are so profound that that um Christians should accept them as the um as the the proof that the revelation has a historical fulfillment that the most profound of them all i think is is the um the, the year of the dull sun which was described by procopius which coincided perfectly with what the revelation was saying about the fall of rome so, right, right. Fifteen thirty-six or whenever that was, right? Or five thirty-six? Well, no, it would have been like five thirty-six or something like yeah, that. Those markers clearly show that now that now um, that the revelation had a historical fulfillment. So, while my my exposition may not be perfect in every aspect, uh, I think that there's enough there to make people understand that that you know even if my, my own exposition isn't perfect that it does demonstrate uh, several things. First, that the revelation is Eurocentric, that, that it applies to white people. And second, that, that it has a historical fulfillment and, and that we can, can indeed discern at least the, the, the basic outline of that fulfillment. But the revelation itself doesn't explain all history. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah, I understand. Makes sense. How do you interpret the time of Jacob's trouble, starting when the dragon was let out of the pit at the time of the mid-1500s, or later when yes, Napoleon... That, that's, that, that's how... Well, well yeah, you know, the, the, the dragon being let out of the pit, that was a process, right? The mm-hmm. dragon going into the pit was a process. 
So, so the dragon going into the pit was a process which covered several centuries, from, from the time of Justinian all the way to the time of Charlemagne. The, the, the dragon coming out of the pit was a process where it started with the De Medici's and, and came to its consummate fulfillment with the emancipation of the Jews. Mm-hmm. Right. They, so they there you've got Napoleon in 1798, and now right. they're all ready to take us on as the new republic. <laughs> well, well, right. If it weren't for the Jews infiltrating the Roman Catholic Church with, with the Borgias and the De Medici's, if it weren't for that, and some of the things that were done in the 15th and 16th centuries, that set the stage that there was a gradualism over the next couple of hundred years that, that set the stage for the emancipation of the Jews. If it weren't for the De Medici's, we wouldn't have had the emancipation of the Jews, right? That there's right. certain political and, and ecclesiastical wheels that were set in motion in the 15th century that, that over the next 300 years led and, and culminated in the emancipation of the Jews and the elevation of the devil out of the pit to a position of equal society and equal polity with Christians, which mm-hmm. in turn in turn allowed for the beginning of a new process, which was the corruption of, of Protestantism and the total infiltration of all the Protestant churches that, that culminated with the total... Um, degeneration of Western society. So, so it's all a process. It's not, you know, even though there are some signal events in the Revelation that were historically, we could look at a date or, or a year or three years and say, this is when that was fulfilled, that, there, that there, a lot of these descriptions are actually processes. So, right. so Satan didn't come out of the pit in one day. It took Satan 300 years to come out of the pit out of the pit that started with the De Medici's and ended with their emancipation and their gaining of that they're acquiring citizenship in Europe, what which what which was in the time of Napoleon. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, certainly that makes a lot more sense than this silly Judeo Christian notion of this seven year tribulation that drives me crazy every time I hear it in response. So <laughs> Okay. Well, well, right. Well, well, the Christian identity um, interpretation of Scripture is, well, well, first, it's entirely scripturally verifiable, even if we're not perfect. And second, it's tangible. We can read the Scripture and, and we can touch the world and feel the Scripture. You, you see what? I, it's tangible. History and, and, and society and life as we know it and Scripture coalesce in Christian identity. And I had a real problem with that recently with a good friend of mine who happens to be a rather heretical Seventh-day Adventist, and he's become a bit rebellious within his congregations out here. But they're in a very deep study of the prophecy of Joel. Unfortunately, they've taken the dual prophecy and they have applied the future aspect of it strictly and limited to, with a spiritual spin on it, to the Seventh-day Adventist Church in its recent history alone, taking our canker worms, palmer worms, locusts, and caterpillars through very minor, short, epic periods of the uh, LNG White Church's experience. But then they'll go back after excruciating detail on that 
and they will not apply any integrity to their historical analysis of the past at the time of Joel, so they miss the racial aspect of it back then. So here they've got all the time in the world to grind over all these details about the future application of the dual prophecy, but they completely ignore any such intellectual investigation into the past. And it just drives me nuts. You just can't turn them on to it at all. Well, well that's a shame. And, 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 you know, Joel, if we have the um, that this end-time prophecy of Joel has to be corroborated, uh, I believe, by other end-time prophecies. And, and in Christian identity, we can do that. Other well, they're trying, they're trying, but they spiritualize into oblivion the understanding or meaning of those two. They're pretty good at that. <laughs> but, well, but I understand, yeah, I understand right. what you mean, Bill, yeah, though. I understand. Historic... Go ahead. It can be shown that the sowing of the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast is is basically equivalent to the great army that Yahweh sends amongst you. Yahweh's talking to Israel. He's only talking to Israel. He sends a great army amongst you. They got to be those beasts of Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you yeah. know, they have to be those... You know, these are two end-time prophecies... And and Joel doesn't take it to the to the return of Christ, but Christ, but but Jeremiah does in, in the fulfillment and, and the consummation of the New Testament, which can't happen until the return of Christ. So so Jeremiah thirty one is is the way to interpret the the, the canker worms and palm worms of Joel. Yeah. Well, I had a real problem with it in that they've been invited to go and to meet with their group, but it wouldn't make any sense because these threshold issues involving seed line and such, unless we can have an honest discussion on that, it isn't even worth starting. And even though I think I get you know a little ways with him and suddenly he starts to think in terms of accepting the possibility of the event in the Garden of Eden being something other than a fairy tale about an apple, um, I don't know. He just goes back and fellowships for another time, and he's right back to square one again. It's just not his time yet, I guess. It's it's unfortunate. Um, I have another question, if you've got the time here, about the depiction of the lake of fire as a permanent torment for the adversary and his followers in one instance, and then total destruction and elimination as if they never were in the case of Edomites, such as mentioned in Obadiah. Well, well who says that it's permanent torment? Well, I thought, in a couple of the, I thought in a couple of the lessons that I had listened to, uh, that I'd listened to from you, that there was this, uh, is almost like a special torment for the adversary and some of his followers, uh, something in the, in terms of forever, but it didn't make sense to me. I, I don't. I, I may have said that in in terms of what other people say about the revelation. I, I don't think I said that in, in in terms of what I would say about the revelation. But because I, I've always pretty much taught that the lake of fire has to be a destructive fire because hell and death and and the beast and the false prophet go into it. Which makes sense, and that's what I believe as well. It's just I was wondering if there was some distinction here, a special treatment for <laughs> Satan and the, the adversary and his, his, his immediate followers, a bit, not the Mamsers perhaps, but perhaps those who fell with him. I don't know. It just seemed odd. But my, maybe I'll go back and, and listen to it again, and if it is, I'll take it up with you another time. But 
what you're saying now, it, from my understanding, is it's a it's a temporary thing. You, you just simply burn up, destructive. There is no well, well, cleansing. Yeah, right. It's the Holocaust. It, it's the Holocaust that we owe the bastards. Yeah. And, and that, that's the way I see it. But but not only do the Jews go into it, and and all of the enemies of Christ, but everyone not written in the Book of Life. Mm -hmm. yeah. And only the children of Adam are written in the Book of Life. Okay. All right. Um, I guess something a little... The last thing that I really wanted to ask about, and I don't know if this is worth commenting or not, but I know that you and Clifton have done some research on telegony, and you've done some research on DNA haplotypes and such. In connection with... Um, Oh, any of the studies that you've done, have you ever run across anything regarding eye color of Aryan-type people as an indication of mixing or something? Yeah, you know, I, I don't... I, I don't... I've never done a, a purposeful study, genetic study on eye color, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. But from a historical viewpoint... I would not reject people because they have brown eyes or green eyes or hazel eyes. And I think that that's, um, well, well, first, it's ridiculous for us to do so and to imagine that only blue-eyed or gray-eyed people get to the kingdom of heaven. I don't buy that. It's um, very historically and, and archaeologically demonstrable that many of the people that Paul of Tarsus preached the gospel to had brown eyes. Right, right. And I've listened to some of your, your things in the past, too, and it's clear that if somebody's going to distinguish Solomon for having eyes like lapis lazuli, that's probably in distinction to others who didn't. So, I mean, it's I mean it's just a logical argument, but I don't know what it means. Well, oh, absolutely, and lapis lazuli was, was blue. But, but there are um, all kinds of mosaics extant and, and wall paintings from, from places where Paul of Tarsus taught, and some of those mosaics and... and um, are actually from Christian assemblies, and people had brown eyes. Well, the one I'm mostly interested in is in green at the moment, and the reason is that I think people with a little bit of a British-Israelite background, these people who believe that only the blonde, blue-eyed Nordic type is the real Israelite, you know the type. And what I'm, what I'm curious about, they seem to look at green eyes, perhaps, as an indication of some kind of an admixture that wasn't right. And I look back at things like, for example, even, and believe me, I know Wikipedia's problems with its credibility, but I was just reading something today, and it indicates that in a place like Iceland that has been genetically isolated about as much as any white people could be, they say that 89% of the males, and, or uh, females, and 87% of the males, I believe that was it, have either blue or green eyes. And I was, you know taken aback by that, and then it also, I was wondering about the red-haired, green-eyed Irish and these sorts of things. It just didn't make sense to me. I wondered if this was just more British-Israelite um, uppityness uh, looking down on, on others. Hey, hey, Bill, if you mind uh, me interjecting here for a second. Um, we, on the, uh, on the Christogenia Forum, there was quite an extensive discussion on the whole eye color issue. Um, if you if you have ever been to the Christogenia Forum, there's there's a, a wealth of information from so many people from all over the world who have contributed to this forum that ask the exact same questions. 
And, you know, we've, we've spent months in dialogue on the forum, you know, just uh, testing various waters and, and various people looking up different things. You've got opinions and, and everything else. Uh, there is quite an extensive uh, uh, community uh, that discusses the whole eye color thing. And basically, to sum it up, you know, what what we all, as a general rule, have come to accept is that by your fruits, you will know them. Well, that's, uh, been my, that's where I've gone, Matt. That's exactly yeah. what I do on any race question, genetic characteristic question. And that's, I think, what we have to do. And believe me, I truly understand what you're saying, and I appreciate it. But I'll still go look at the forum. I think that's a good oh, suggestion. <laughs> sure, absolutely. But there's, absolutely. Um, to, to show some of the difficulty with, with um, the eye color of ancient people, even though we do have people with blue eyes and brown eyes in, in Greek and, and, and Roman and Egyptian archaeology, right? That this yep. people with blue eyes and red hair that were dug out of the Egyptian tombs. That now, that, that they're, according to Aristotle, and, and I don't have the citations for this, but but I, I have it pretty much um, as a sketch. Uh, according to Aristotle, there are four eye colors. Chief, chief, not only, but four chief eye colors in men, right? And he gave those eye colors as um, glaucus, which means blue-eyed or gray-eyed, right? And melis. Now, melis is the word we get melatonin from. It could be taken to mean black or swart or dark. And that we can only translate as dark-eyed. Now, it could probably refer to people with brown eyes. Now, another word is carapus, and, and carapus is bluish or, or gray-eyed, either one, and, and it's really just a synonym for glaucus, basically. And, and the, last, the last one is ahigopus. And igopus or ahigopus means goat-eyed. Now, what the hell is that? Yeah, what in the hell is that, Bill? <laughs> okay, so, so that's... The, the, that describes some. Did goats? Did Greek goats have green eyes, or did they have yellow some, eyes? We've heard some strange things about those Greeks' lifestyles. So, right, right. Well, well, yeah, you know, they describe people as goat-eyed and dark-eyed, or blue-eyed or gray-eyed, and okay. that's according to Aristotle. That's like the fourth century BC, I think. Um, what do you make of that? Well, you got a lot of Israelites that are moving all around the world and coming up into Europe, probably with all those different combinations and things in between, probably too. So, well, well, right, because uh, Aristotle called those the chief five colors of men. But yeah. He didn't call them the only. Well, I'd read something today about the Tocharians, and they were saying they were blue green. So it's interesting. About all right. who? The the Tocharians the the. Uh, I think they were the Scythians or the uh, the Israelites that went east. They were, they, they were definitely a branch of the Scythians, yes. Yeah, I think they're the ones that went clear over by almost to Mongolia or whatever, right. and that's that the, plateau up there with those mummies. Date, the, those bodies probably date from, from the second, or, or I'm sorry, the third to fifth centuries BC. That there's um, esti- there's some older estimations, but I don't necessarily accept them. Okay. 
Okay, well, I appreciate your comments on that. I'll go look at the forum, Matt. Thank you for the suggestion. And uh, the only other thing I had uh, was your ideas on pre-existence. Um, you were going to talk about that. I don't know exactly. Well, well right. I, I do want to talk about it, but somehow I don't think it's going to be tonight. Since <laughs> okay. Yeah, you know, the, the Adamic souls do not pre-exist until we're, we're formed in the womb. Uh, there's plenty of scriptural evidence of that, and, and I will go into that on, on, a, on a program in the near future. I, I really did want to get to it tonight, but I don't want to rush it in the last 10 or 15 minutes of a program, right? Well, I was rushed today discussing it a little bit at a Starbucks with some friends, and I have to say I, I did come to some at least preliminary ideas, and I'll just throw out this one. It just seems to me that, and I come from, well a reorganized Latter-day Saint background long ago, which is kind of a Mormon church. And, boy, they've got some real specific ideas about preexistence and all. I mean, they're going to marry and bring those souls down here. But what I realized was that this whole concept of a genetic encoding by virtue of two seed line, to deny that when we're born a body and raised a spirit, when we do come through Adam, it denigrates the specific importance of that seed line if you think that we're going to pre-exist and come down and we could basically occupy any vessel he chose for us. So if we're going to be true to our bloodlines and our genetic seed line, if we're going to have a situation with Noah being perfect in his generations or race, um, I think we have to think it through in the context of what that really means at the genetic level uh, based upon this sperma, not spiritual sperma. So I... That was just a well, direction. Well, right. Abraham was promised. Abraham was promised that that these nations which descend from him, which are his offspring, which are his sperma, will, will come from his loins. Yes. That they weren't going to float down from heaven. Well, when Paul talked to to um, and when Paul talked to the Hebrews about the the um. The, the prevalence, the preference of the Melchizedek priesthood over the Levitical, Paul said that Levi was in the loins of Abraham when Abraham had made his, his tithe to Melchizedek. Mm-hmm. If Levi, if Adamic spirits are in heaven before our bodies exist, then how the hell could Levi be in the loins of Abraham? Right, right, and then the, well, well, the response is going to be by some, yeah, somebody's going to say, Bill, and you know this, and you've already addressed this in other things. They're simply going to say, well, he also said he know he knew so and so before he was in his mother's womb. So well, well, you'll right. get, but, 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 whoa, whoa, that tells us the providence of God that God can know. Paul said in Romans chapter four that these nations would come from Abraham's loins. And he said that Yahweh God is he who calls things not existing as existing. Right. So Paul, I, ex- I understand, and Paul, I was just playing devil's advocate. <laughs> Paul, well, I'm answering your devil's advocate because it ain't going to fly with me because I know in the Bible Paul's telling us that these people that were going to be his sperm, his seed, did not exist when Yahweh made that promise to Abraham. They did not exist and they came from Abraham's loins. They weren't floating around on a damn cloud somewhere waiting for their turn to come to earth. Well, it sounds scriptural, and it also sounds like what I was talking about earlier. It sounds logical, too. So, 
<laughs> I, I agree with you, Bill, so far. Paul taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that we're sown a, 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 but we're sown a physical seed and raised a spiritual seed, and, and he says that the first man is of the earth, earthly, fleshly. The second man is the Lord from heaven. He's using Adam and Yahshua Christ as an analogy. We first exist in our earthly bodies. And then after that, we exist in our spiritual bodies. Right, and giving all the more significance of what those unbroken cisterns are all about. I also think that it would give an entirely different spin on that battle in heaven that happened before, that the cast of characters involved in that are a lot different from what some of these denominations think it was today. So... Uh, well, well, you real... know, these sophistics, these sophistic fools like to point to Job and say that when God created the heavens and earth, all the sons of God jumped for joy and, and shouted for joy. And, mm-hmm. and that's fine, okay? When, well, when the children of Israel went to battle, all the tribes of Israel went out to battle against the, the, the whoever, the Amalekites. All Israel went to their tents in the days of Joshua. How many times did all Israel go to their tents? I mean, it's several times in in, in Scripture. Does that mean that you went to your tent? Mm, I see, yeah. No. You see what I mean? All Israel went to their tents. Does that mean you went to your tent? Well, of course not. You weren't born yet. All the sons of God shouted for joy. Does that mean that you were there? No, that doesn't. No, it doesn't. Of course not. It doesn't mean that you were there. Okay. You know, just because there were sons of God extant at that time, uh, just because we have a divine counsel doesn't mean that that was us. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that doesn't mean that our spirits existed and our spirits were there. Our spirits are formed in the womb. It's in Isaiah. It's several times... I don't have the scriptures. Um, I don't have the scriptures in front of me, but but several times I think it's Isaiah chapter forty-four. Yeah, you know, Yahweh talks to Jacob and, and Israel, and, and um, but thus saith the Lord that made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you? Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. Yeah, He that formed you. From the womb. That, that's in Isaiah chapter 44. It's in, it's in several other chapters of Isaiah. It's in there several times. Paul says that he was appointed from his mother's womb. You know, we were formed in the womb. Well, we weren't formed in heaven and then stuck in some random fetus. That, but, when somebody, but when somebody says we were born from above... That's where things get a little confusing for some, and that's and I understand. Well, well right, but you know that you know that you know John says that we're righteous. John says that in, in his first epistle that we won't be imputed with with sin if our seed is in us, mm-hmm. not if the spirit from heaven is in us, but if our seed is in us. That the spiritual body starts with that fleshly seed. Okay. Yeah, I'll have to go look at that one again. That's a good one. 
what what is the distinction between sons of heaven and sons of God? So sons of heaven. Well, well, that that that's all a matter of um, of perspective, right? The the the, the I, I believe that if the sons of God came down and went into the daughters of Adam, well, what's the problem with that? Adam's the son of God. But, but yeah. if the sons of heaven, if those angels are a separate creation and were not to commingle with Adam, then there is a problem with that. And, yeah. and there clearly is a problem with that. that. Now, I don't think that angels came down in Genesis chapter 6, that angels came down with wings from heaven and, and screwed with white girls. I don't think that. I think that that reference to sons of heaven is a reference to the fallen angels, to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was already here. Right, and that's the direction I've gone with that as well after listening and studying as well. I think that's, I think that's probably right. Okay. Well, I will tell you how absurd it gets in some quarters. You may have heard this before, but coming from a Mormon background, there is actually a belief among some that there was a battle in heaven and that depending upon the valiance of your fighting for God, led by Michael the archangel, um, it determined what your reward or position was when you did finally come down here, when a good Mormon family would marry and then have uh, well, 15 well, kids. You know, that's absurd. I know, I know, but 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 the but the but the ultimate absurdity. What I'm getting at here is, <laughs> if you didn't fight valiantly, then you came down here and you were born black. <laughs> it got so well, crazy. Well, the false, yeah, yeah, right. The the false presumption in that is that well, well, first salvation and our fate is determined by by the works of man, right? Well, well, no. The false presumption there is that that war in heaven is an ongoing war that's still going on. Well, when mm-hmm. Revelation chapter 12 talks about that war in heaven as being in the past, and the proof of that is that the, the Satan in the war of heaven is identified with that old serpent, which can only be a reference to the Genesis 3 serpent. And if the Satan in Revelation 12 is identified with that old serpent, then John in Revelation chapter 12 is actually describing something which happened long ago from his time and, and had to be before Adam was put in the garden because that's where the old serpent would have had to come from, from yeah. the fallen angels. Mm-hmm. So, so we can't imagine that this war in heaven is in the present or future, but when the, the language in Revelation clearly puts it in John's distant past. Yeah. But then I've... again, what, what, is, what, what does Scripture mean to a Mormon? Or a Baptist. <laughs> well, yeah, they they do force feed it into the weirdest contorted images. I just I just can't believe it sometimes. All right, well, those were the questions I had. I covered them all, and I appreciate your time discussing them. I I really enjoy the show, and I enjoy the time with you, Bill. Well, well, thanks for your participation, Tom. Because it doesn't look like there's any other callers. I mean, I announced this call-in program at a week ahead of time, and, and um, it's amazing. I have so many people that want to make comments in, in other venues, whether they're positive or negative, and, and I mean, they must have seen the, the notice of this program or heard it if, if they're re- 
really that concerned with, with, with what I say, and, well, well, we have no other callers, so. Yeah, well, I didn't, uh, I certainly understood that, and it certainly surprises me you wouldn't have anyone else. That's that's unfortunate. Um, I will say, though, living up here, as we talked about before, I see, as you've identified, an area that's been particularly targeted. So we continually see more and more examples of the great you know, movement against us. But one of the things I've had to deal with recently is kind of moving away from a couple of the churches up here, uh, even even subscribing to some of their newsletters and such, because they are really trying to be all things to all people. And as a consequence, I've had to really ramp up the individual studies. And because of what you and Clifton have done, it's made that an enjoyable thing. My father had grown up in... Um, the Mormon Church, but about 30, 40 years ago, I don't know, he became um, a follower of Bertrand Compare, and ultimately, and I know your position on ordination, but he was ordained by Compare and taught in his own church for about 20 years down in Southern California. He called it the Covenant Church of our Redeemer. They ordained me as an assistant pastor, and I helped out for a while and did a number of things, but the history of all of that was that we were still steeped up in a lot of things that I think a lot of baggage was still there from the old Mormon beliefs and some other things that um, you know we battled for a while. My father was pretty open-minded about it and was able to you know pretty much bridge us into some truths here that I think have been quite quite fortunate for us. But when you came out when you first came out, and I I didn't really hear about you until about a year and a half ago, um, it just seemed to take it to an all-new level because my my training academically, um, I'm a lawyer. I do have a, and I hope that doesn't bother you. <laughs> I I have Don't I've we had. Well, we, we all make mistakes. Yeah, we all have our faults. But I will tell you this quite honestly, Bill. I went to law school in Southern California. And I got to my first law classes, and I was expecting naively something completely different. I understood constitutional principles as they were originally taught to some extent, and I had high regard for some of our founding fathers. And when I got into con law and I got into some of these other classes and I realized what they had done, I began to see the Talmudic influences you know, firsthand from those professors. And you know, I argued and wrangled over it, and when I got out, I started practicing constitutional law. I represented of all things, and don't don't throw stones at me for this either, I represented American Indian tribes. <laughs> and for a long time, I wrangled around the hill in Washington, tried, got three bills through Congress, did a lot of things. And the upshot of the whole thing was, it was all meaningless. It was absolutely ridiculous, totally unsatisfying. And the only thing that ever seemed to make me happy was when we would eventually get honest with ourselves and start considering these bigger issues and bigger picture ideas. When I well, heard well, about, we don't want to, you know, I was a I was a Reagan Republican. I described myself as once, right back in the 1980s. I, I um, what we all think that we can at, at first when we realize that we're in an unjust world, at first we want to seek justice within the system. Yes. 
you know, and we strive to fight for justice within the system and, and convince our liberal and Marxist and, and uh, other thinking brethren that they're wrong and, and our way is right. And in the end, we only have justice in Christ. And, and the mature of us who, who actually investigate why there's injustice in the world come to the understanding that we can only have justice in Christ, right? And, and, and hopefully find Christian identity and, and true justice. And, but and I, never, I never understood that specific issue until I moved to Idaho about four years ago and about two years ago, or a little less than two years ago when I first started listening to you. That's what made it finally gel, because up to that point, I still held back and reserved this desire, this obsession with wanting to change things from within the system. We had just come from a five-year campaign in Orange County in California, having taken down the ninth largest school district's board of trustees and replacing them in a series of elections and recalls. I mean, we really shook things up. And I assure you, for a while, I mean, we have 200,000 voters in in our school district. That's how large the district was. We won, and we won, and we won, and we kept winning. We were taking the unions to task. But the moment we were gone, the whole thing fell all to hell again, and all of our efforts and all of the money and the time, it was a real rude awakening. And I had to think of something a bit more lasting and meaningful, and I knew better, but it was something that I dragged my family through. In some respects, we learned a lot, but in others, you know, there's damage that comes along with that. I'm proud of some of the things we did, but I'm also ashamed I spent so much time in it and took faith in a system that I knew in my heart of hearts was corrupt. But Well, well you know, God calls us out of it, right? Yep. You know, and, and we're all lost in it until God calls us out of it. So, yeah. so you shouldn't be ashamed. You should just praise God that you're out of it. Well, I'm only ashamed because there were some family members around me who knew better and I wouldn't listen. <laughs> That's all. And one of the, one of them's looking at me right now, nodding. Well, well that's, that's humility. So you so you have humility. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay. Well, I, I that's what it is. That's what it is. <laughs> well, well, all I, right. Not not to cut you off, Tom. Uh, Bill, are you willing to take a few more phone calls? Looks like we have uh, two callers uh, yet. Um, we may have about 14 minutes. Okay, well, we'll take two calls, but what we got to, because of the time constraint, we got to limit them to like five to seven minutes each. Sure. <laughs> All right, well, sorry about that, Bill. I'm going to pop off and let you well, talk no, to no, them. No, and... you didn't do anything wrong. These people just called. I mean, we've only been here for an hour and 45 minutes. I'm kind so of playing with you. Thank you, Tom. Tom, your contribution is very much appreciated. It, it's invaluable tonight. And, and praise you, Ali, and thank you. All right. Amen. God bless both of you. Bye-bye. Good All right. We have uh, East Tennessee on the line, Bill. Yeah, yeah. Whoever was first, Matt. Yep. East Tennessee, you're on the line. Yeah, Bill. This is. Don in Bristol, Tennessee. Could you give me some Hello. history on Hello. Yeah. Yeah, how you doing, Bill? I wanted to ask you, can you give me some history on the Picts? Uh, were they before the Celts, or were they part of the Celts? Are they Israelites? Could you give me just a brief history on the Picts? 
Well, well, you know that they, they were described as being tall and, and redheaded. The, the Caledonians that they were also called that they had um, that they were described as being tall and fair and redheaded, and they were said. I think it was. I could be wrong about this. I don't know if it was Nennius or if it was Geoffrey of Monmouth. I'm leaning towards Geoffrey of Monmouth. Said that they came from Scythia. Now, they match perfectly a lot of the early Greek descriptions of the German people as being tall, fair, red-haired, or at least tribes among them. But that's how Herodotus, that's exactly how Herodotus described the, the Boudini, he called them, a Germanic tribe which was tall, fair, red-headed, and blue-eyed. The, the, um, the, the pit certainly came into, seemed to have come into Scotland from Germany, while the... Scots seem to have come into Scotland from Ireland, and the Scots came after the Picts. So, so the the Picts are certainly, um, I believe, uh, some of the descendants of the dispersed Israelites found in the Scythians who made their way to the British Isles. So there are Israelites also then, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, me and Melissa had talked about that at an extent, and we discovered that some of our relatives had been picks, and they were pretty mean people. Well, well you know, it, it's um, yeah, you know, we can assume we, we can make assumptions over whether our ancestors in Scotland were Scots or Picts, but it, it's kind of hard to tell. The Scots and the Picts were united under Kenneth one McAlpin in. The 10th century. So, so the Scots and the Picts have been united for for um, for, for well, well, a thousand years. Right, right. So, I think it'd be hard to say this guy's a Scot and that guy's a Pict. I don't know. It, it's um, I think it might be difficult to tell that by now, right? Right. Well, thank you, Bill. I appreciate it. I just had to ask you that question. Find out which side of the fence I belong. Okay, well, that's my opinion. I'm not an expert on, on Scotland. I, I don't know as much. Well, well, there's not. It's hard to know more about Scotland because they didn't have much of their own writing, you know, in ancient times. So. Right, right. Thank you, Bill. You have a good night. Yahweh bless. Thanks for calling. Yahweh bless. Okay. All right, Bill, well, we are, uh, yeah, we have, we have one more caller from Saskatchewan. Hey, Bill, ahead, it's Hunter here. Hello, Saskatchewan. Yeah, Bill, it's, yeah, Bill, it's, it's Hunter. Um, I just wanted to, there's one topic I want to briefly discuss, but I wanted to touch on that thing about eye color. Um, and one of the eye colors, you know, you mentioned was, we've talked about there, there can be whites with blue eyes, uh, you know, even brown eyes, gray eyes, and, and, and green eyes, that kind of thing. Um, and in my travels, when I work, I come across, um, I guess, they're, they're Indians, but they, some of them are, you know, mixed blood Indians, half-breeds, um, how, however much white blood they may have in them, I'm not sure. But, you know, when I look into their eyes, they have brown eyes, but th- there's something different, right? Like they, it, it's like the eyes don't glean. They're, the, the color doesn't pick up light that much, right? It's, it's kind of flat, you know? Um, 
Just something different. Well, well, right. I, would agree. I would agree. I've seen Negroes that their that, that their brown eyes look like. Well, well, I don't want to say what they look like. Pal chips. You should be familiar with them. Um, yeah, yeah. There are there are different shades of brown. There, there's no doubt. Yeah, and and there, there's like I have green eyes myself, right? And there's uh, both sides. Like my mom had very blue eyes. All my uh, people on my mom's side had blue eyes, and on my dad's side, he had blue eyes, and um, blah blah blah. But his his my uh, grandfather, he had brown eyes, and he was German. So, and and one of my dad's brothers, he has brown eyes, and and, and they're actually, even though he's a half brother, they they are dark brown, but they're, you know, they're fairly dark, but they're not, uh, just you know, they're just different when you look at them. I don't know how to explain it compared to looking into the eyes of an Indian with brown eyes, right? So I just I just wanted to say that. But uh, what I wanted to talk about is, I hope it's not a little bit out there. It's certainly off topic what we've been discussing tonight, but it's regarding. Uh, NDEs or near-death experiences, and I'm just wondering what you make of those. And it seems to me that it's predominantly whites that have this experience. Um, and, and and I used to have a problem with it, like when I was younger, because you know I was taught the you know the Judeo-Christian thing of you know like heaven and hell, and you know if you're not born again kind of thing, you're going to obviously go downstairs and not upstairs. And so how, how do all these people, you know, they're going through the tunnel, they're seeing the light, that kind of thing. And, and, and the common, there's one book that I'm not sure who this fellow is that he wrote that's called Deceived by the Light. And the, and the, the uh, I guess the explanation is that, you know, it's that mythical Satan, right, or whoever, Lucifer, he's playing a trick on people, making them thinking, you know, that after the you know, that this is the experience they're having is that they're going to heaven. And of course that validates the fact that even if they weren't born again, uh, you know, we know that it's born from above, right? But that they weren't born again. And yet here they are, they're in the tunnel, you know, they see the light and some of that experiences where they thought they saw, I guess, Yeshua or, you know, Jesus in the, I don't know if some have said they've talked to him or they, but you know, they, they seem to, feel his presence or whatever it was, you know. So, I mean, well, the, the experiences well, are let's, slightly... Let's, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to say the experiences, I, I, are, the experiences are slightly varied, but they, they all share some very, you know, similar things, you know, the tunnel, the light, blah, blah, blah. And then they they weren't... I don't know if some of them, it was like, you know, a heart attack or it's when they had an operation and they're... You know, it's verified clinically that they were dead and so while they were dead, they had this experience. And also, it seems to me, among children, there's a lot of experiences with this. And then I just wanted to throw that in there. It seems to be... I, I can't ever remember about black people or, or non-white people having this, this experience. So I, I just, is this exclusive of only white people having this experience? And what do you think about that? Like, what is, yeah, what's going know, on here? Uh, uh, all right. Well, well, I got some things to say, but it, it may not be what you're, you're expecting me to say. I don't know if if you've noticed it or not, but I like to consider myself like just about the most pragmatic expounder of of, of scripture. So, so I only like to comment on on things that I could see and touch or get from old books, right? Right. The, do you see what I mean? I, I don't. Uh, other people's um, claims or descriptions or, or experiences, I, I don't really care about. 
I care about scripture and history. That that's what I do, right? I've never had a yeah. near death experience. So so because it's outside of my personal um experience, mm-hmm. I don't like to comment on it. I I just wanted to the only reason why I'm bringing it up is not just to bring up things that are, you know, ethereal and we can't really you know, we haven't experienced for ourselves, but it just the observation that it seems to be predominantly among whites and if it's truly we are that you know we're god's children like we're his seed line from from adam on well, all well, the way I through to that, i believe that but for biblical and historical reasons right yeah no no i understand that but i just thought maybe that might be sort of a thing well, that well, kind of I, validates well, it right i was i i spent 12 years in prison right and and in prison you're, you're really you need to have some noise in your ear, otherwise you hear niggers all night. So, so I'd rather listen to the radio. And yeah. um, I spent many nights falling asleep to Art Bell and George Norrie and people talking about near-death experiences. Yeah, and and sometimes and, they were entertaining, and, and sometimes it was a little, uh, I don't know if you want to say fascinating, mystifying, but, but for the most part, I look on all that with a great skepticism, right? Because if you mm-hmm. listen to, to a thousand um, people talk about their near-death experiences, well, well, 500 of them are probably full of shit and, and really probably want to, um, but maybe they had a dream or, or they want to make something of something that it wasn't, and, and maybe they want to get an agenda in there. I, I don't, I, I don't know how we can quantify. Um, near-death experiences, because I don't know the the the, um, the, the, the reliability statistics on the, the people that claim to have had them, right? So I'd rather not get into discussions about that. Mm-hmm. And that's why I stay away from things like that, right? That's why I'm such a, a pragmatist that, that, that um, I only like to really talk about um, mm-hmm. what we see in the Bible or, or what's um, demonstrable through history and archaeology. I, I stay away from stuff like near-death experiences, UFOs, um, yeah. all, all that stuff. Uh, yeah, I'm not but, really interested in a lot of that, that you know, stuff to do with that's kind of out there, you know, like, say, UFOs or whatever. But uh, just the near-death experience involved, that whites have, you know, and, the, and some of the experiences that are beyond this life that whites have, you know, and... and I, I don't know anybody in my family that had a near-death experience, but th- there is experiences where they've seen, uh, you know, people after they, my mom claims she saw, and she's Irish, like 50% Irish, and she's 50% British. She's as white as white can be, you know, very light blue-eyed and blah, 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 light brown hair. And she's uh, seen my grandma, who was, you know, Irish, and she saw her, she claims, after she had passed, and she also saw my dad after she had passed, and and she doesn't make too much out of it, but, you know, there's, I just wonder about some of these things sometimes, because it seems like there is something going on, and, and there's this other thing that, where people talk about that subject of soul sleep, you know, that when we pass away, you know, we don't wake up until we're resurrected, there's no in-between kind of thing, so why I'm wondering about this is because of you know, NDEs or, or, you know, some things that are experiences within my own family where, you know, people have seen 
like my mother who've seen uh, other family members after their death and, and that kind of thing. So I just don't know how to, where to, you know, comp- how to compartmentalize that, what to do with it. Right. Except I guess nothing. Right. <laughs> well, if, well no, if you, don't... you know, if, if, if somebody could take a survey of everybody who ever had near death experiences and found only white people, that, that would be fascinating. But when you publish the results, I'll bet some damn Jew is going to come up with a whole list of niggers to claim to have near-death experiences. Well, yeah, and and yeah, yeah, yeah. Latino, you know, let, let's <laughs> and Latino type seem to. You know, I've never heard of a Chinaman having a near-death experience or or any kind of a. I've heard of Latinos. I think maybe cl- making some type of claims or whatever, but as for for Negroes, I, I I'm not sure. But you're probably right. You know, but anyways, I just wanted to, I, I didn't want to bring that up to be, uh, you know, like over the top or whatever, but I just. Oh, that's, that, that's fine. It's just not my cup of tea. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's okay. Maybe. maybe that, mm-hmm. Okay. That's about it, Bill. Um, well, well, thanks for the yeah. call, Hunter. And, and it's wonderful to hear from you and, and thanks for participating. And okay. that, that's Matt. Are you there, Matt? Say yep. Sure <laughs> Thanks, Matt. I really appreciate you. You're a great brother, and, and I don't know where I'd be without you. But we're going to end the program on that note. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening. Um, I don't know if I'm going to do another call-in program for three months now, because I, um, even though the three callers we had were great, two of them were late, and, and, and uh, I just... Um, you know, if I had these programs, it would be nice to have more participation, even from the opposition or, or at least Christian identity people who may disagree with me on some topic or another. And and um, but we can talk about that too. Thank you, everybody. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and and good night. I'll be here tomorrow night with Sword Brethren and Martin Luther, Part Four. Good night.